What's up, Tiaholics? Welcome back to the Tea on Crime. It's your host, Britt. And I'm the co-host, Jessica, wife and true crime skeptic. Just as a reminder before we get started, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply our own and are only presented to educate. We've linked the case sources in the episode notes below. Hold on real quick, you guys. We're jumping into an ad. This is episode 14, and this week I'm telling you the story of Gerard John Schaefer. Wait, before you begin, can you believe it's episode 14? (laughs) I purposely left that out of there, but no, I cannot believe it. I'll never be able to believe it. (laughs) I I can. No, 14 usually comes after 13, but you didn't say it last week, and I didn't catch it soon enough, so I just wanted to make sure that we... We got that out of the way. I'm trying to switch it up, but no. Can you believe it? (laughs) (laughs) No, I cannot. Okay. Gerard, John, Shaper, carry on. (laughs) Before I start this episode, I want to give a listener warning that this case involves talk of sexual content, rape, and crimes against children, and some listeners might find this triggering. Please take care while listening. Oh, we just escalated real quick. All right. Escalating pretty quickly lately. Yes. (laughs) Yes, we have. All right. Thank you. I can't wait. (laughs) Gerard was born in Wisconsin on March 25th, 1946, and was the oldest of three children in a family that he later described as turbulent and full of conflict. Years later, when he would be interviewed by a court-appointed psychiatrist, he would refer to himself as a bastard child, the product of a hasty shotgun wedding. He would go on to describe his father as a verbally abusive alcoholic, adulterous, and often absent from the home on business trips or otherwise. Gerard would admit to becoming a peeping Tom and would often spy on little girls in his neighborhood while he was growing up. Experiments with bondage began around age 12. Goodness. (laughs) He would later go on to tell several doctors, I'd tie myself up to a tree and I'd get really excited sexually and do something to hurt myself. He also stated that around this same time is when he began to masturbate and fantasize about hurting other people, women in particular. Okay, so he's stating that he would tie himself up, get sexually aroused, and then he would hurt himself. Yes. Do we know in what way? Um, No, I didn't find any reports that said what way. It just said that he would hurt himself. Okay. He said at this time is when he also discovered women's underwear and he would wear them. He wanted to hurt himself. So I'm not really sure if he meant that by wearing the underwear is him hurting himself because he was dressing like a woman. I wasn't sure exactly what he meant in that quote, but that was his exact verbiage. Okay. Just so you're aware. All right. He said that his reason for cross-dressing was so that he could avoid being drafted into the Vietnam War, which he indeed did manage to escape. He also admitted killing animals in his youth. Interesting. I was not aware. Oh, okay. I got it. Right. Yeah. Don't ask, don't tell type. Okay. Right. The violent and self-loathing behavior went back to his early childhood games that he would play. In those games, he told the doctor, I always got killed. I wanted to die. My father favored my sister, so I wanted to be a girl. I wanted to die. I was such a disappointment to my family as a kid. To my father, he loved my sister. I couldn't please my father, so in playing games, I wanted to be killed. It's painting a very interesting psychological picture. I okay. knew you would find I'm, this case I'm starting to get a little excited. Right? Okay. Gerard would meet his first girlfriend, Sydney, at the age of 14. The two managed to stay in a relationship for three years. 
Gerard would make her take part in role-play fantasies in which he tore off her clothes and raped her. She would later go on to end this relationship. So I thought that was really interesting. They are super young children Mm -hmm. to be doing that. And they just, I don't know, that was, that was crazy. But by the late 1960s, the Schaefer's family had settled in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Gerard graduated high school there in 1964, and he was working on several college degrees when his parents divorced three years later. Okay. Schaefer claimed to have visited a psychiatrist in 1966, seeking relief from his sexual deviances and homicidal fantasies, but he claimed that therapy didn't help. If his later statements are credible, he would claim that he kept on hearing voices that would say they would tell him to kill. Okay, so he had an abusive alcoholic father who favored his sister. Yes. And the father was an adulterer, so constantly cheating on the mom right. with other women. Okay, got it. Right. That same year, he ended up touring the South with a church group that he described as the up with the people. Interesting. Folks who sang about freedom isn't free. Schaefer thought about the priesthood as a calling after spending time with this group, but he was turned away from St. John's Seminary, where he recalled, they said I didn't have enough faith. He also tried to become a Catholic priest, but was rejected. This made him so angry that he decided to quit the Catholic Church altogether. So he originally was practicing Catholicism? Yes. Okay. He was. In 1967, Gerard earned an associate degree in business administration, and on January 1968, enrolled in the Florida Atlantic University to get a teacher's license. He claimed that his reason for wanting to become a teacher was to instill quote, American values like honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. Interesting. After doing so, he managed to briefly hold down a teaching job at Plantation High School, but after a few weeks, he was fired for, quote, totally inappropriate behavior. Plantation High School. These are such good names. (laughs) His supervisor at the time was quoted to say, I told him when he left that he'd better never let me hear of him trying to get a job with any authority over other people or I would do anything I could to prevent it. Schaefer eventually set his mind on becoming a police officer and did get a job as such in spite of the fact that he failed his psychological test when he applied. He ended up moving to Martin County and would eventually become a deputy sheriff. In 1968, he married but divorced after two years. His wife at the time cited cruelty as the reason. In 1971, he got married again, this time to a woman named Teresa Dean. Don't you find that interesting, though? He became a police officer even though he failed the psychological test. They just let him through. Well, you do know that when you're doing those kind of tests and with like the FBI or the CIA, they also do the profiling, right? Right. And a lot of the times, a lot of the people that they accept Uh do in fact fail some of those tests because the overall test of it is, is this individual able to think like the individuals that we are attempting to stop? Oh, yeah, so they look for individuals with criminal history. They don't okay. want a lot of people that are squeaky clean. Not to say, obviously, that they're not taking great individuals that have no record of right. anything, you know, criminalizing. But right. I'm just stating it's it's a very gray line. Huh. All right. I did not know that. In March of 1972, Schaefer earned an award for his role in a drug bust. An ex-FBI agent at the time later said that Schaefer didn't have an ounce of common sense in him and didn't feel that the award was well-deserved at all. So he sounds reckless. Yes. On July 21st, 1972, 
Schaefer pulled off his first known murder attempt. He used his power as a deputy sheriff, and he convinced two hitchhikers, Pamela Wells and Nancy Trotter, that hitchhiking was illegal in the county, which it was not. He then drove them to a halfway house at which they lived and promised to pick them up the next day and drive them over to the beach when he would be off duty. But instead, while they were still in his car, he drove them into a swamp and he tied them to a tree at gunpoint. After he tied the girls up, his police radio went off and he had to leave them in their position. He had placed nooses around their neck in such a manner that if they had slipped and fell, they would be at risk for hanging. The girls managed to break free and run to the nearest police station, which ironically is the same one that Schaefer worked at. Smart. Gerard returns to the tree to see that the women are gone, and he immediately calls his boss, Sheriff Crowder, and said, I've done something foolish. You're going to be mad at me. Okay. (laughs) When Crowder found out what his deputy had done, he fired Schaefer and arrested him for unlawful imprisonment and aggravated assault. Good. Schaefer was able to make bail, and he was free to hunt again. During his time on bail, he abducted two more female hitchhikers— 17-year-old Susan Place, and 16-year-old Georgia Jessup. They released him on bail? They did. While he was awaiting, like, the case to move forward, he was re- he made bail. He paid for bail, and he was released. I read at the time that it was $15,000, so he put up bail, and he got out. You know, I'm so glad that we did not grow up in the 70s. In granted, time. I granted, I, I grew up in the 80s, so it's not like it's that much better. <laughs> but just the idea that they didn't take these kind of crimes seriously right. and they allowed them to get out on bail and to have the opportunity to murder so many more people. It's just, it's very disheartening. Well, and you have to wonder if he kind of was yeah, okay, you can get out on bail because he was in law enforcement or if that played into it or not. I mean, he was fired, but was it something that they were like, oh, he's a deputy, he'll be fine, good luck. I hope not. I don't know. Wisconsin. (laughs) Susan's parents said the girls were last seen at her house, leaving with an older man who said his name was Jerry Shepard, and they were on their way to play guitar at a nearby beach. The girls never returned. It's interesting that he gave her his name. No, he faked a name. His name is Gerard Schaefer. Jerry is a form of Gerard. Oh, well, Shepard obviously is a different last name, but I did not know that Jerry would play into that. Susan's mother had been suspicious of the man and had written down the license plate number of Shepard's Blue Dotson. Sounds like my mom. (laughs) But remember, Shepard is really Schaefer. Unfortunately, she copied the tag's prefix as the number 4, which represented Pinellas County, instead of the number 42, which was for Martin County. Six months had passed before she realized her mistake. When Gerard had returned to court, he was able to make a plea bargain, and he was only sentenced to one year in prison, with the possibility of being released after six months. At this time, Susan's mother found a lead that tipped her off that the man was really Schaefer, and she walked right into the jail with a picture of her daughter Susan and her friend Georgia, but of course, Gerard denied ever seeing the girls before. In 1973, hikers found human bones near Blind Creek on Hutchinson Island. Upon hearing this news, Schaefer shredded his short stories that he was working on and threw them away. The two teenage victims were identified by dental records. It was Susan Place and Georgia Jessup. Schaefer, of course, was the only suspect in this case. 
The similarities between their murder and Schaefer's attempted murder with the two previous hitchhikers were enough to secure a warrant for his mother's house where he and his wife lived at the time. But he's still living with his mom? He was, yes. <laughs> Inside, they found a total of 11 guns and 13 knives. Good lord. A mountain of evidence implicating Schaefer in the disappearance of over 30 women in the area over the years. What? Right? Such as jewelry, newspaper clippings of local girls that had been missing, a hundred plus pages of writing and sketches duplicating mutilation murders. Duplicating? Duplicating. You mean depicting. <laughs> depicting. Yes, you know what? Words are hard. Man, I made it so far. Right, okay, so. <laughs> so okay. drawings and writings of the women that he had done himself, clothing, diaries, a driver's license, a passport, and some teeth. That's a lot of souvenirs. It's a lot or of trophies. souvenirs. But remember, I mean, if if that's 30 plus women, it sounds like he basically kept something for everyone. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's like multiple items. Oh, it's of a lot. One. He claimed that the teeth had been planted by an ex-roommate who, according to Schaefer, privately confessed to murder. The roommate in question was interviewed by police and cleared as a suspect. A trial began on September 17, 1973, for the murders of the two young women. During his trial, living kidnapping victims Nancy Trotter and Pamela Wells appeared as witnesses for the state and confirmed Schaefer's fondness for abducting teenagers and tying them to trees. Susan's mother, Lucille, also appeared and described the last time she had seen her daughter, she was leaving the house with Gerard and Georgia Jessup. On October 4th, Schaefer was given the maximum legal sentence, which was two concurrent terms of life imprisonment. The monster was caged at this point, but the question is, how many had he killed? Are you ready for this? I don't think I am. <laughs> In spite of the massive amount of evidence against Schaefer, he was really only ever tried for the murders of Place and Jessup. Oh. But because he was sentenced to life in prison for the crime, no other charges were ever pursued since they thought it was enough to keep him away from the public. Which kind of makes me really sad because if you think about all the women that were possibly... The 30-something. Yeah, that were harmed by him. Those families are never going to get justice. Mm -hmm. And they just thought, well, you know, he's not going anywhere, so it's fine. We'll call it good. I mean, I guess... I don't know. It just... That was crazy. No, it's sad. And it, it is an injustice to the families because at the end of the day, their their daughters go missing. And obviously they have evidence incriminating Schaefer in those cases. And their daughters just become invisible and right. forgotten. Yeah. His wife only went to visit him once and that was to serve him divorce papers. Good for her. <laughs> Shouldn't have married him in the first place. While in prison, Schaefer still managed to run a mail fraud scheme from his prison cell, having associates post ads in sex magazines and sending letters to people who replied, he would always use a female name. In some letters, he pretended to be a 14-year-old girl who offered to send paying customers nude photos of herself. He also enjoyed sending convicts and other prisons letters, pretending to be a woman, and pursuing romantic relationships with them. Well, that's kind of messed up. Yeah. He also acted as a jailhouse lawyer, using the information he gained from convicts to sell them out to authorities. He was even able to get a murderer sent to death row. Interesting. Right. So he was just kind of playing the game in there. <laughs> yeah. He was playing something. Schaefer was not a well-liked man in prison. Go figure. Yeah. 
but he managed to be friends with fellow serial killers Ted Bundy and Otis Toole. I have no idea who that letter is. I feel like mostly everyone that listens to true crime is aware of who Ted Bundy is, but Otis Toole, possibly not. So in case you didn't know, Otis was a self-described cannibal. I love that you had this already ready because you knew that I was going to be like, I don't know who Otis Toole is. Absolutely. I knew you were going to bring it up, so we're going to go into it. That's cool. He was suspected of many murders, but most notably the 1981 kidnap slaying of Adam Walsh. Wait a minute. Adam Walsh. Is that what's-his-face's son, John Walsh? It right? is. The, and he did the show, right? The America's yep. Most Wanted or whatever? Yep. Wow. So by the time that Schaefer had met Otis, Tool had several times confessed to Adam Walsh's murder, but he would always recant his statements when investigators asked for proof. Schaefer wrote to Adam's father, John Walsh, who of course was the host of America's Most Wanted and posed as Otis Tool, demanded $50,000 in exchange for Adam's remains so that John could get them and quote, buried all decent and Christian. Did he ever find his son? He didn't, did he? No, I didn't he think did so. not. Walsh ignored this offer. During these friendships, the men would discuss murder techniques together, although the entire time Gerard denied having committed murder and explained that one of his convictions was that he had been framed by a local drug lord for killing two narcotics <laughs> informants, and in turn, he had filed a total of 19 appeals, all of which were, of course, turned down. Behind bars, he would privately brag about killing a lot of women, but he pursued countless lawsuits against people who had publicly called him a serial killer, including many true crime authors. He once even sued a writer for describing him as overweight. Well, it, I mean, it sounds like he's obviously very protective of his reputation, even though at this point there was damaging evidence and incriminating yeah. evidence against him. I think he didn't care. It was the fact that when all these other people were writing about him, they were giving details that he did not want other people to focus on. Of right. Him. But then in prison, totally bragging about it, trying to be, you know, the cool guy, I guess. But I mean, when you're friends with Ted Bundy, you probably have to brag about something to I just meant in that. the sense of they were taking away from what he had done by calling him overweight. They're not right. focusing on what on his he, actual yes, crimes, on what he wants yeah. them to focus on. While in prison, he would go on to write countless stories, some of which were suspected of being real accounts of murders he had committed, and others were grisly fantasies. In one story titled Whores, he recounts hanging a prostitute and having sex with her corpse. Wow. In another book he titled Spring Break, he recounts fatally stabbing and disemboweling a student during sex. Oh my god. A series of his stories were about a rogue cop who moonlights as a serial killer targeting prostitutes. Schaefer was approached by Sandra London, who was his girlfriend in high school and later became a true crime author. In 1989, she got his stories published under the title Killer Fiction, which failed commercially but maintains a cult following to this day. How interesting. You know that your ex-boyfriend is a serial killer and you want to make money. Of, of course him. she okay. does. Cool. And the fact that I'm sure that is the only reason she approached him. Well, yeah. In some of his writings, he would write, quote, As I recall, my list was just over 80. I'm not claiming a huge number. I would say it runs between 80 and 110, but over eight years and three continents. One whore drowned in her own vomit while watching me disembowel her girlfriend, but I'm not sure that counts as a valid kill. Did the pregnant ones count as two kills? 
it can get confusing. I wish that everyone could see Jessica's face right now because her head is just spinning on this. I'm just dumbfounded. <laughs> wow. Did the pregnant ones count as two? What? What? what kind of human being? Right. Well, and then it makes you wonder because he says that his number runs between 80 and 110. Yeah, but you know. I mean, I, are you just trying to make yourself sound? I think so. Right? Yes. yes. Sandra and Schaefer were briefly engaged in 1991. Are you kidding me? No. When he proposed the idea of marriage to her, he noted that his wife could not be forced to testify and said, quote, even if I were to show you a basket of severed heads. But she broke it off, leaving him for another serial killer, Danny Rowling, a.k.a. the Gainesville Ripper. I don't I don't know who that is, but it sounds like she's just a fan of hopping from one serial killer to another to get money. Oh, for sure. And she's making money off of it and making all these books and just finding all the men in there. <laughs> I guess good for her. Sandra would look beyond his grisly crimes and say that she found Danny handsome, charming, and really quite wonderful. She said that the feeling was mutual. The couple soon announced their engagement, although the warden vowed there would be no marriage. But undeterred, Sandra wrote another book, but this time about Danny Rowling's case, splitting the proceeds with Danny's brother. Okay, so not only is she hopping... But she's also making money with siblings and, and the serial killer's fan. I, I see. So everybody's, <laughs> yes. everybody's essentially profiting off of their... Right. Okay. Right. When Schaefer learned of Sandra's new romance from prison sources, he sent her a letter on February 13th, 1993 that read, Hello, whore. <laughs> Sorry, I just have to laugh because I just can imagine him as a person. And this is how we're starting the letter. <laughs> You tell her. <laughs> so it goes, hello, whore. The word on the yard is that the queen of the sluts was romancing Danny Rowling. Valentine, you're mine, and I know what you're up to. Money. You're going to get Danny boy fried while you make a buck off his misery, right? Well, go for it. Just make sure you keep my name out of it. <laughs> but I feel like by writing that, he's inserting himself and his name into this business. I think so too. I just like that he just started her letter off like that. That's, that's funny. Um, okay. Well, he's obviously upset. Yeah. Just a little bit. On December 3rd, 1995, Schaefer was found dead in his cell. Oh, wow. Okay. He had been stabbed 42 times and his throat slashed and he had also been stabbed in both of his eyes. Oh my God. <laughs> the perpetrator was Vincent Riviera, a fellow inmate who was serving time for double murder. Sandra London later said that Riviera had killed him in an argument about a cup of coffee, though it has also been suggested that it was really because Schaefer owed some inmates money or because he would rat out other inmates well it sounds like he in the end got what he deserved yeah that sounds horrible though can yeah, you 42 imagine? times I mean, not even the 42 times okay not not even the 42 times or being your throat being slashed or both eyeballs just the idea of having both of your eyes stabbed out like that just well <laughs> oh it gives me no i can't and it kind of makes you wonder did we go for the eyeballs first oh, when yeah. he was a, when you? he was alive you know, I mean, if it was me we were talking about, I probably would. I would go for <laughs> if the he eyes. Was trying to prove a point yeah. and then do it, you know, one at a time, clearly. You want the ultimate suffer. So I would go for both eyes, stab him 42 times, let him lay there for a minute because he's obviously <laughs> suffering. And then you slash his throat because then it ends it. Yeah. But it kind of makes you wonder, like, 
where were the cops when this was happening? Did oh. they just kind of look the other way? Well, of course and... they did. I don't know, but I it thought reminds that... me of what's his face? What's the guys that Jeffrey Epstein? Yeah, right? everybody randomly just took a coffee break and then the he cameras was... were off everybody kind of disappeared at that <laughs> and point then he found himself randomly right nobody really knows what happened not to say that you didn't get what you deserved jeffrey but you know <laughs> that's another case <laughs> in 1997 killer fiction was published again but this time with an additional text by london about her experiences with schaefer and drawings some of women that had been hanging undressed women that Schaefer had left behind in his jail cell. Oh, so these are so, drawings by him. Yeah, so he dies. She comes back and decides that she's going to publish the book again, but this time take things that were in his jail cell, which I thought was really interesting because I guess I'm curious how she got that. It's not like they were married. I don't know. You're giving me a look like <laughs> some shady stuff was happening. Clearly, she wasn't the most... Uh ethical human being no, so i'm she sure wasn't. she gave some money and everybody else profited and she got what she wanted and other people got money so i mean right. i feel like it's a mutually beneficial win-win yeah. i think it would be interesting to read this book i would be curious if it's still being sold today and if it's something that you can just you know purchase but who who wants to see that and i guess i would well, you clearly to, well <laughs> anyone that listens to true crime but no. i guess i would I don't know. I would be surprised if they were still selling it today because especially having these drawings of this these women in the book. It's 2023. These kind of people live for these type of crimes. And I just feel like again and again and again, serial killers are immortalized and people just let their memory and their legacy live oh, yeah. on for forever like what's his face Richard Ramirez who did yes. really horrible things yes. and had a cult following and he was just an awful human being but he was everything and all of his victims became yeah. unknown well people definitely they start to romanticize all these serial killers right because just like that women loved him women still love him and people forget about the crimes that they committed and it's it's really sad so i would not be surprised if yes this was still being, available i'm sure you could find it somewhere right. i'm sure it's not available like at your local library <laughs> the deep dark web i'm sure you could find it honestly i'm sure you could find <laughs> it on ebay but it's just it's unfortunate because i think that there's just a lot of individuals that have some very keen and specific fantasies that go along with the crimes that he did. Right. During Schaefer's known murders and his attempted murders, his targets were always teenage female hitchhikers. For both known attacks, he had abducted two victims at a time. He would always use some sort of ruse, like the first time he had used his position as a law enforcement officer. He got them to come with him into the swamps of Hutchinson Island, where he would tie them to a tree. And just like in the case of Place and Jessup, he butchered and killed them, after which he buried them in the area. That's so crazy to me. Well, and it's crazy to me that why was it always female hitchhikers, I guess? 
was there some kind of logic behind well because maybe no one would notice if they went missing is that why well I think back then hitchhiking was a very common thing especially in the 70s right it was during that people protesting against the Vietnam War you're right so this was the time where everybody was peace love and everybody trusted each other and obviously it opened the door to a lot of things but he went after teenage women I'm assuming because his sister was younger and his sister was put on a pedestal above him right so I didn't even think about that so it probably all ties back to his sister yes it ties back to his past trauma and the fact that his dad always put his sister above him that's why he went for younger women number one because they represent his sister but number two he put himself in authority position because he has that control and that power over the situation to where he is in charge versus I'm sure in his past, his sister was always placed above him and his dad would always side with the sister being the favorite of the siblings and not him. So it makes sense why he would fantasize about hurting women constantly. No, that makes a lot of sense. At some point, it was noted that Schaefer had wrote about how he was tired of killing victims singly. Quote, Doing doubles is far more difficult than doing singles, but on the other hand, it also puts me in a position to have twice as much fun. There can be some lively discussions about which of the victims will get to be killed first. When you have a pair of teenaged bimbos bound hand and foot and ready for a session with the skinning knife, neither one of the little devils wants to be the first one to go. And they don't mind telling you quickly why their best friend should be the one to die. Oh, that's very sad. Yeah. So he clearly really tortured these women, but he started taking them two at a time. We can't know for sure when Schaefer started doing doubles. Seven years after the fact, his name was linked to another disappearance of two more women who had vanished while having a picnic in the Ocala National Forest. The case still remains unsolved to this day, and both women are still considered missing. A better case still exists for Schaefer's possible involvement in the murders of nine-year-old Peggy Ron and eight-year-old Wendy Stevenson, who both vanished from the beach on December 29, 1970. Oh, that's so young. It's very young. A day later, a clerk at a nearby convenience store reported a man buying ice cream for the young girls on the previous afternoon. The clerk was able to identify photos of Peggy and Wendy and describe their companion as a white man in his 20s, six feet tall, and around 200 pounds. Be careful because you're leaning towards the overweight and he clearly didn't appreciate that comment. (laughs) He did not. The girls still remain missing to this day. As we know, Schaefer was never charged for this crime either, but later confessed in a letter found that he had written while in prison dated April 19, 1989, that reads, quote, I am annoyed by all this murder talk. Peggy and Wendy just happened along at a time when I was curious about the 1930s cannibal Albert Fish and his craving for the flesh of young girls. I assure you these girls were not molested sexually, I found both of them very satisfactory and even more so with sautéed onions and peppers. Wait, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. As in he ate them? I mean, that's what he's leaning to. And again, he says, you know, in this letter that they came along at a time in his life when he was really interested in the cannibal Albert Fish. And Albert Fish had a craving for the flesh of young girls. But to make it a point in the letter to say, I assure you, these girls were not molested sexually. I found both of them very satisfactory 
and even more so with sautéed onions and peppers. But his M.O. is to sexually molest or have sexually deviancy going on with any of his crimes because that's the type of serial killer he was. So it is. That doesn't make any sense. So the only thing I can think is I don't know if they possibly came along first or at a different point in his life i don't think it would have mattered i think he still would have done something sexually deviant because that's who he was so i don't he may not have molested them sexually in his definition but do i think something sexually inappropriate did happen absolutely so the question is do you think he ate them Ooh, i don't i don't know about that i i hope not Isn't that horrible? So these were the youngest victims, at least known. So much for having breakfast. (laughs) But isn't isn't that an interesting statement to end your letter with? It's either, to me, it's either, yes, he really did it, or he's trying to make himself sound more interesting and just kind of lead people on a wild chase anyways. I just find the last sentence, the last sentence bothers me. I found both of them very satisfactory. So I assure you these girls were not molested sexually. And then he states, I found both of them very satisfactory in in what context? Yes, exactly. The even more so with sautéed onions and peppers. I'm not going to lie. That part doesn't really bother me. It's, right. I assure you these girls were not molested sexually. I found both of them very satisfactory. That that doesn't make sense to me. No. And that's very haunting. Yes, it is. Yeah, when I was writing that, I was like, wow, what a line. Can you imagine reading that and being the person that found that? And how sad for their families. Because again, we don't know for sure that he did this. Oh, I mean, he confessed to it in a letter, sure. But he's never, there's no justice. Weren't there a lot of serial killers back in the day, though, that would confess to random murders just to Just make, to do it. Yeah, for publicity. Yeah. yeah, especially in this time frame. Everyone wanted to talk about it, I feel like. And then everyone wanted to say, yes, I did this because they wanted the the fame behind it, right? But, but then did they really? I feel like at the same time, you do have those serial killers that want all the fame, but you have the ones that are quote and unquote ethical yeah. in, <laughs> in the sense of, no, I did not kill these people, but I absolutely killed these people. Right. So it, it just, I don't know, it's very hypocritical, right? <laughs> ethical of ethical. a serial, yeah, <laughs> the ethics of a serial killer. So I, I don't know. I don't know if he, that's a great question. Yeah. Well, we're never going to know. That's the part that sucks. You know, we're never going to know. We have the letter to go off of. It sounds like he got what he deserved in the end 42 times over. And his eyeballs. (laughs) I hope it hurt. Exactly how he killed his victims is unspecified in most sources. As of now, there are 11 known cases that he can be linked to, but like we talked about earlier, the evidence that was found during the search of his mother's house can really link him to at least 30 women that had gone missing all during this time frame while he was out on bail awaiting trial and in his earlier teen years. Although who's to say how many victims he really had? That's so crazy to me. And I feel like I don't know. I think there's a lot more than 30. I guess I would be interested. Again, I go back to him saying my number is somewhere between 80 to 110. But what confused me was he said eight different states and three continents. What does that mean? Because he always, they settled in Florida. So is he just trying to throw you for a mind game again? Isn't Florida on the border of something? I I don't know my my history that well i mean mean i think so you mean your geography (laughs) not not your history your geography (laughs) i know (laughs) fun fact 
Okay, since I like to give Britney's, I just like to air Britney's dirty laundry across the air. It's very funny. So, for most of you, right, (laughs) speaking of history, most of you in school, at some point, we all, and by all, I mean everybody in the U.S., we all learn about the Civil War. Here we go. Here we go. (laughs) Which has to do with slavery okay i'm not laughing at slavery that was definitely the wrong time to laugh no she's laughing because right so with the civil war one of the biggest known women was harriet tubman okay you have abraham lincoln right who wrote uncle tom's cabin and in one of his conversations with harriet tubman he literally stated you're the little lady that started the entire war like just based off of her words right and Brittany and i when we were first dating had had this conversation and i think it was right around when the u.s was releasing the movie harriet in regards to harriet tubman and you know all of that time and so we were talking about that and Brittany and her mom who i know also listens to this podcast. So, <laughs> shout out mom <laughs> so i'm talking to you too the, there was four of us having this conversation and we said something about the underground railroad and Brittany and her mom both stopped with this like deer in the headlights look <laughs> and then stated what's the underground railroad <laughs> and then myself and this other individual were just so devastated by the the not knowing i don't i think i was speechless for like five minutes just astounded at two human beings not knowing what the underground railroad was so the movie comes out we're gonna fast forward the movie comes out great movie by the way if you haven't seen it 10 10 recommend i have britney watch it just so she can gain some context okay in my attempts (laughs) to educate her because i love history so she watches the movie The credits are literally rolling, and Brittany turns to me with this very confused look on her face (laughs) and says, so where is the Underground Railroad, though? (laughs) (laughs) And I stopped and looked at her, and I said, hold on a minute. Are you asking where the physical underground railroad is and she's like yeah it's called the underground railroad and i was like Brittany, that's the name of the movement and organization and i was like have you been sitting here for like two and a half hours this entire time watching this movie thinking that these individuals literally dug an underground railroad in the ground through like two or three states to gain their freedom and I was like please tell me that's not what you're saying please for the love of god tell me that's not what you're saying and her look just told me everything Listen, I'm just saying it would be pretty cool if there was a legit railroad. They were slaves. I'm just saying. I can't with you sometimes. Thanks for sharing that information. You're welcome. You know. The world. You're always putting my stuff out there. I mean, if you didn't make it so easy for (laughs) me to do this to you. Anyway, so back to history, whatever. I don't even remember what we were talking about, but that was just my story for the day. We were talking about how he made the point that it was eight different states and three continents. Uh, Yes, geography. Yes, because he's talking about the number of women. So my question just was, I was posing the question of, I guess, do you think he was just trying to play mind games with whoever was reading the letter? Because again, we don't know. We don't know how many women there were. But he, in everything I could find, he was always in Florida. So what is he talking about? You've got all these different states. Well, at some point he was in Wisconsin. Right, right. right. So I guess it could have started there. And then Florida, when they moved and settled down. He went to school. 
right? right. And then he married a few different women. I'm right. sure that they traveled. Yeah. And I'm sure that he's gone to Mexico in his single years. Yeah. So who's yeah, to maybe. say that he didn't go to like Canada or right. anywhere else? Right. I don't know. It just, it was crazy. That is the story of Gerard Schaefer, also known as the Hangman Killer. What did you think? Is he known as the hangman killer because of his two victims when he was a police deputy that he had put the nooses essentially around their neck and left them there? Yes. And he always, like I said earlier, would go after female hitchhikers. And that was just his MO. He liked to tie them up to trees. So it kind of goes back to when he was younger. I think he was 12 when he was talking to the doctor and said, I like to tie myself up to a tree. And he would get sexually aroused by doing so. But that is why he is known as the hangman killer. swamps I just yes. put the fact that he was I for whatever reason I was like there are no swamps in Wisconsin what are we talking about <laughs> but he was in Florida I yes. guess yes yeah he's um it was different I thought you would enjoy that one for the, his psychology aspect it's very sad he's a very atypical psychology case right he would have been definitely interesting to study I think he would have for a time yeah um and I think past a certain point maybe like a few days to yeah. a week I think you would have learned everything and studied everything that you would need to know just based off of his history alone he checks all the boxes that- well and he admitted young to checking all the boxes mm-hmm. he just came out and said this is who I am this is what I've done but I feel like a lot of serial killers are very unapologetic like that yeah because they're sociopaths and they have no conscience so it for it sure just, Like I said, is he interesting? Yes. Would he be interesting in today's age and date with (laughs) technology? No. No. No, he's a dime a dozen. (laughs) So, dear Gerard Schaefer, just know, in your memory, in 2023, you would be nobody. (laughs) You were boring. Are you ready to hear some tea? Oh, yes. Yes, I am. You like how I switched that up again? Yeah, what is Trying your, to usual, switch what's your usual saying? I think it went, all right, you guys, time for my favorite part, something about tea time. But you know what? I'm switching it up now. I so have to keep it interesting. Is it because it's not your favorite part anymore? You know, it's just because you call me out on things and I didn't like being too predictable. So I had to switch <laughs> up. <laughs> well, I think it's because most people think that like our intro, when we do the little disclosure in the very beginning, right. they always think that that's pre-recorded. It's not. We do that every episode. <laughs> every time. And then I think that they think that the intro into your favorite is pre-recorded. Yeah, and it's not. It's so. not. Are you ready for my tea though? I am. Carry on. <laughs> When Stephen Crane broke into a Montana newsroom, he used the computers to watch porn and check Facebook. Oh, good Lord. (laughs) Then Crane doused the office with a fire extinguisher, took some candy, and left. It wasn't difficult to find him, however. The police just followed the trail of stolen M&Ms that led to his sister's place across the way. (laughs) Was this person like a teenager? No, it was a man. But you're just like, I'm going to go watch some porn. I'm going to check Facebook. I'm going to light this place on fire. Don't let me forget my candy. It's like follow the bread. And then he's just like dropping candy along his way. Wow. (laughs) I enjoyed that one. Stupid. These people are so stupid. Now this is the part where we go, speaking of stupid. (laughs) Are you calling my jokes stupid? Absolutely. No, I'm just calling you out. Listen, I enjoy my stupid. Jokes. I don't care what you think, but are you ready? Speaking of stupid things, I am ready. Okay, so in the essence of true crime, here's a joke for you. 
if a child refuses to nap, are they guilty of resisting a rest? <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. All right, you ready for the last one? I'm ready. What country's capital is growing the fastest? Ooh, I don't know. We already learned that I was very good I mean, at out, outside of the U.S., <laughs> so not like California or... Tell me, I'm ready. Ireland. Every day, it's Dublin. Oh my gosh, it's Dublin. <laughs> Do you know what it means by Dublin? Yeah, I know what it means. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> this isn't the Underground Railroad. I mean, you know, sometimes I wonder. Thank you for telling me your joke. Thank you for listening. Before we end this episode, we wanted to announce that our podcast, The Tea on Crime, has now joined Patreon. For those of you that aren't familiar with what that is, it is a monthly subscription page platform that will be ad-free with bonus episodes that are exclusive only to our Patreon listeners. So head on over to our page at patreon.com slash tea on crime to hear more tea being spilled. We're really excited to provide you with bonus content. And then as always, everybody, we really appreciate your support. That's it for today's episode. For all of our teaaholics that enjoyed our show today, please remember to go and rate the show on whatever platform you are listening to. Give us a follow on Facebook at Tea on Crime Podcast, Instagram at Tea on Crime Podcast, Twitter at Tea on Crime Pod, and TikTok at Tea on Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Britt. And I'm your co-host, Jessica, and we will be back next week to serve you more tea on all things true crime. Bye! Before we end this episode, we wanted to announce that our podcast, The Tea on Crime, has now joined Patreon. For those of you that aren't familiar with what that is, it is a monthly subscription page platform that will be ad-free with bonus episodes that are exclusive only to our Patreon listeners. So head on over to our page at patreon.com slash tea on crime to hear more tea being spilled. We're really excited to provide you with bonus content. And then as always, everybody, we really appreciate your support. That's it for today's episode. For all of our teaaholics that enjoyed our show today, please remember to go and rate the show on whatever platform you are listening to. Give us a follow on Facebook at Tea on Crime Podcast. Instagram at Tea on Crime Podcast, Twitter at Tea on Crime Pod, and TikTok at Tea on Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Britt. And I'm your co-host, Jessica. And we will be back next week to serve you more tea on all things true crime. Bye!